I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Dobry večer and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Doe. Hello and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Coleman. And I'm Travis Dow from The Secret Cabinet. Alphonse Bucha was born in Ivanchitse, Moravia. Now, before we go even further, we want to make sure that you know who we're talking about. So stop what you're doing right now. Actually, we don't want you to stop the, the podcast. Listen to the podcast while we're talking. You can Google and do two things at once. I'm sure you can. All right. Yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And go and do a search for Mucha. That's M-U-C-H-A. And you'll come up with some, some imagery that I'm sure that you find uh, either fa- also fascinating, but uh, also something that's very familiar because his work has been... Uh, imaged uh, across uh, nationalities, across time, and has been uh, copied many times moreover because he was a trendsetter. He was he was uh, an artist that um, that that really took oh. his art to a whole new level. Also, you can also we'll, I'm sure we'll post pictures on Bohemican.com or um, if you go if you find Bohemican on Acast, there'll there'll be a. A picture embedded in the player, I'm sure, because this uh, is know, really hard. In your right, the, it's the epitome of Art Nouveau. If it, I mean, if perfect. you Google, I mean, you'll just know. You'll know exactly uh, who this guy is. You'll be like, oh, he's that guy. He is like the Art Nouveau guy. Yeah, that's who we're they, talking about. You coined it right, Art Nouveau. That's that's what you need to keep in your head about this. And I think that this is one of the the hardest things we have to do from an audio podcast standpoint is to be able to uh, talk about maybe an artist's work. Uh, we, we talk uh, uh, ad infinitum about people and culture and histories and, and the great things that they've done, including music. And, and uh, we talk about some of the, the, the battles or some of the political gains that were made. It gets really tough when you're trying to do something of a visual yeah. on an audio and podcast. Yeah, and, and, and his work is really, I mean, um, as, as you're about to find out, is for some of it, it's, it's really awe-inspiring to see it in person. I just, even the scale, it's just a ginormous scale, some of his works. And, um, that doesn't really come across in a podcast. So we'll, we'll do our best, but, but, uh, on this episode, maybe more than others, we encourage you to, uh, stop by bohemican.com to look at some of the pictures of, of what we're talking about. And in a cast, uh, I don't know if we'll get around to it or not, but it does have the ability to kind of have a slideshow embedded into it. So, um, uh, that's an option, but that's <laughs> that's, that's that's more time consuming. But um, yeah, definitely definitely swing by uh, bohemican.com to take a look at like the stained glass uh, w- windows we're talking about, or the typeface, or um, his style in general, and how it changed throughout the years. You know, we'll we'll try to clarify that on the website. So, 
as the man Muka, we look at him and we think, well, you know what? He's got to be the favorite son of Bohemia and even some more the favorite son of Prague. But that's really not really the case because there's so many other co- towns and, and countries that want to name him. Uh, that would be Vienna. That would be Paris. Uh, that would be even New York City. He spent time in, in, in New York uh, during his his, his, uh, his artistic uh, renderings and, and trying to get an idea about what his his image would be. Um, you know, he really was a well-traveled man for, for, for the era of the of the late 19th century. And uh, he he was uh, a man that really was a trailblazer in his art. But he always he didn't but he didn't start off as an artist, Travis. That was kind of very interesting about this. Um, he had, had a good singing voice, and he was able to get through high school with his voice alone. But uh, that, but but it was his drawings that was really his real hobby. But he kind of kept that to himself. He didn't want he didn't really want to uh, expose that to a lot of other people. But um, when he was young, but he did his but he did show his work in Bruno mostly in in his theater scenery. So he would be the guy responsible for the backdrops of these great plays in the city of Brno, which is uh, today's de facto capital of Moravia here in the Czech Republic, and another town that claims to be his town, by the way. We'll get to that later. All right. Um, so he finally got a job in Vienna in 1879 uh, for work as a, as a design uh, a designer in a design company. Um, so he kind of took the security sort of, sort of route to where he wanted to be as an artist, and I think he took something that was a hobby and made it into a profession and later became a legend. In uh, the, the time in Vienna didn't last. It only lasted a couple of years when, uh, unfortunately, this this designer, well, actually, fortunately for his future, future career, but uh, but his gig in Vienna didn't last all that long because his employer's business burnt down in 1881 and he returned to Moravia. And now luckily he, I mean, so for a, for a short time, he was just kind of surviving, doing freelance decorative and portrait painting. Um, but he got a break. And if you go to the museum in Prague, there's, well, there's more than one, but uh, there's there's a great um, museum that exhibits a lot of his stuff in Prague. And um, they show a video because the even this is now gone, um, but he got a gig from a count um, a noble, a nobleman who wanted him to kind of decorate his uh, in crucial in Khrushchevani, uh, the Emmahof castle, just deck it out with murals, the whole nine yards. There's video of this. There's photographs of this, but that castle itself burnt down. So Mukha's earliest works is actually all destroyed. But this did kind of give him a name. Uh, this was definitely a big uh, contract, you know, to, to paint the inside of a whole castle. And it was very impressive. And so um, this count, Karl Kuen of Mikhailov, agreed to sponsor Mukha's formal training at the Munich Academy of Five Arts, Another city that's kind of proud of Mucha. Um, but um, he went, you know, he moved on. So he went uh, to Paris in 1887. And it's Paris. We should focus on Paris for a little bit because Paris is really where he made his name. His coming out party. Yeah. This is like, um, so uh, one thing I want to point out that you kind of have in the back of your mind as we discuss Mucha is that Mucha his whole life was a proud Moravian. And we... Pete and I just recorded a show on Greater Moravia, and um, uh, so if you want to hear about what a proud Moravian is or why there's proud Moravians, go listen to Greater Moravia. Um, but 
Mucha lived in the time in the late 19th century under Austro-Hungarian rule, and he found a lot of success in Paris, but he kind of, you know, he yearned for Prague, he yearned for his home, he um, didn't like that the Slavs were under the yoke of the Germans in Austria-Hungary, or the Hungarians uh, for the Slovaks case, uh, and, and he was very hyper-aware of all this, and, and wrote about this, and read about this, and um, liked to show this in his paintings. The problem is, is that that didn't really sell. What sold was theater posters. And really, this is where he got his name in Paris, was these uh, plays would create these big posters to display on the street, and they would be um, basically printed. And, you know, famous ones include, like, if you go to a museum, you'll see a bunch with Sarah Bernhardt, um, the people that that made uh, theater plays with her also preferred Mucha, and it kind of became a thing that. So you see this, like you see him portraying the actress as many character as Cleopatra, as um, just all kinds of in in the French Art Nouveau form with this flowery border and lots of colors and um, you know low contrast, but a lot of it, tra- you know, it translates very well to stained glass windows. Even you exactly. kind of get that idea yep. of how that would go across with it. The multiple uh, bits of color. I, and Trav, I'm sorry to interrupt you with this, but I, I think this is a good point to bring this up. In these lithographs that you see, uh, or these big these big posters, nothing compared to it at the time. Everything was drab, you know, compared to what Mucha was was able to put out in Paris. And the Parisians just fell in love with this stuff. And, well, and you're right. He would he would on. take hold on. Yeah? Parisians love this stuff now. I wouldn't say they <laughs> fell in love with it overnight. Okay. Um, because fact, yeah. of the, fact of the matter is, is that Parisians can be very conservative and uh, they want nothing with the word nouveau at, at all, at any, anywhere. Like to say art nouveau um, to, so in, in German, so first of all, let me make a quick point about art nouveau. Art nouveau is the style that people started to call Mucha's style, not the other way around, okay? So um, you, everybody, I assume, knows what Art Nouveau is. That's Mucha. Mucha, people coined it to describe his work, okay? And it's the new art. And in German, it's not called like that. It's called the Jugendstil, the young style, um, because also it's a break from the old. Like in, if you, uh, I don't know if you've looked into history of art, um, it's, a, it's a radical shift at this time. And then other later eras are kind of more derivative, like Art Deco has more to do with this than it does from the stuff before it. Um, so yeah, so really Mucha was revolutionary. So yes, he's iconic in Paris today and Parisians, um, everything from, so in those movie theater, in his early days, those movie theaters, he created a typeface, basically a very certain style of letters that he started using. And you're familiar with it. I guarantee if you go to a French restaurant, that's the font. That's what I'm talking about. It's that Art Nouveau. Mucha, that Mucha created that and used that in his. Uh, or even you know, or so you see it on on the uh, the uh, subways uh, underground that you see Absolutely. in Paris. Metro, the Metropole. The Metro yeah. logo itself is Mucha's typeface. Exactly. Yep. Well, we I mean, Travis, you mentioned uh, Sarah Bernhardt uh, as one of his. Um, earlier sort of people that sat for him so he could draw them and put them into, you know, this this sort of iconic sort of uh, posters that you would use for uh, theater posters. You know, that's that's really what he would do. Take beautiful women 
and he would put them, you know, right in front of him, and he would just freehand. He would freehand draw and and get an idea of their features, and then then add the flowery sort of things to their hair, or make them look like goddesses, or maybe who they were supposed to be acting. Uh, 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 the, the the role that they were supposed to take in the theater, yeah. they would he would make that that person into this role, and and he just did an amazing job of it um, with these flowing neoclassical sort of looking robes that would come through, and and he often would surround the uh, the women with beautiful flowers and and form these halos behind their heads. So really, uh, he made everything else look really drab and and standing still um, uh, compared to his style that was given. Mukesh style really took uh, an international exposure, a leap and bounds by the year 1900 at the Universal Exhibition in Paris, in which Mukesh said, I think that this exposition made some contribution towards bringing aesthetic values into arts and crafts. All right. I don't know if that's more of a backhanded sort of compliment to it at all. I wouldn't look at what he would do as arts and crafts. I don't know if that was a self-effacing sort of sort of deal or tongue-in-cheek because, as Travis, you said – People in Paris at the time of the turn of the century didn't really appreciate the stuff as they would later. Um, I think that uh, it does take a lot of um, foresight to see see what he had done on canvas and see that that uh, he really captured, you know, a real sense of of the models that he was that he was drawing and painting. Mm-hmm. And I think that at this time, if I'm not mistaken. He was getting um, a, a lot of people uh, from from overseas that were more appreciative of his work in North America, specifically uh, a lot of these nouveau rich people in New York City wanted him to do work for him. So he had uh, a free ticket to go to the United States, and while he was there, he was learning uh, more about his trade. He was making a lot of money. Um, and he was getting also a, a, a thought about what the new world was like. You know, we're talking New York in the turn of the century. It was a hop in place, probably kind of dirty and busy at the same time, but very different from Prague, very different from Paris. And I think he took that energy with him when he came back to uh, Europe. And you'll see the big changes that he, were, he was doing in his artwork right after the year 1900. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, everything everything you just said is actually is is really important in his story, and then also um, to a degree to Czech stories because in the United States is where he met um, his first connections of people with money, like you said. But he also met some of the um, interesting people that were interested in kind of revolutions in general and, you know, these these big rich millionaires um, in, in New York City that were interested in the affairs of Europe. Um, as an example is like Charles R. Crane, who also met Tomas Masaryk, who we're going to do an episode on in this period, and he was the first Czechoslovak president. And um, so I guess my point is, is that Mucha was in these circles, and when he came back to Prague, it was this man that returned to Prague. Um he now returned to Prague with a family. He had gotten married. He married a, a Czech girl. He had a, a son and a daughter. And when he returned to Prague now, it was as a known entity. And he wanted to show his Czech compatriots that he had not sold out, literally. Like, he he, he didn't go to uh, Paris and become French and go to New York and become American. Now he wanted to prove to the Czechs that he's still proud of being a Moravian. Proud to be Slav. 
I mean, yes. this is this is, and we're going to get this a little later on in the show tonight. But um, well, this is this influence. is where all that starts. This is where yes. um, I don't know. I don't want to uh, bring you out of your order here, but this is like instantly from coming back into Prague, um, we start seeing the municipal house, and. Uh, I almost want to say you've seen a picture of it. You just don't know what you're looking at. If you've seen pictures of Prague, because everybody that goes to Prague takes a picture of the municipal house and he's done the inside. So you might not see Mucha's work just by taking the picture of the outside, but there's some gorgeous uh, murals in there and, and great artwork. And, and that's, this is from that time. And so still, let's say 1910, uh, you know, before world war one. Um, and, and he had time to do this and, um, uh, there was another, there was another, oh, the theater of fine arts. Yeah. He, he got that contract before the war, um, already under the Austrians, you know, so the Austrians already had his, his respect and, and, you know, brought him to Austria, uh, in the world fair, like you said, in Paris, he also did decorate a part of the Austrian, um, house in the world fair. So, you know, Austrians liked him even too, um, is, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, he was commissioned, you know, for post World War One to make these, you know, beautiful sort of epic, epic drawings and, and paintings uh, to you know, usher in the the uh, Czechoslovakian uh, new government. Yeah, and and you mentioned his connection he now, had with T.G. Mazarek. Let me make one strong break here in the podcast. Okay, there's pre-war. Um, his rise to fame and then getting the, uh, the fine arts and the municipal house commissions. And then there's post-war and you're like, um, before we go there, let me just say now, now he is a star with no bounds because the young nation of Czechoslovakia just embraces him as a symbol of what Czechs are capable of. Because he's loved in New York, he's loved in Paris, he's loved in Vienna, uh, you know, Munich, you name it. He's he's now has he's internationally famous, making a pan-Slavic sort of movement of being yeah. proud to be Slavic All was of this something really that was just takes hold. Yeah, it was a void that that he filled. Yeah, and not only did he do this, um, he said, well, "I'm wait. going to recreate history." And one more thing I want to add before we get to pan-Slavism is is um, his love uh, the Czechoslovak. Love for Mucha in this era can be seen in. And now these are all the works he was paid for, mind you. Because when we get to the uh, the the Pan Slav epic, this is basically he made enough money to support himself. No one really wanted to pay for this. He had to like beg noblemen for money, and uh, we'll get to that. But but as far as what he did for the nation of Czechoslovakia, they put him. He designed stamps which I try my best. I try my best to collect like Mucha. I'm not a stamp collector, but I like Mucha stamps and Mucha um, coin, uh, bills. He also cre- uh, created uh, um, some of the banknotes in the First Republic. Um, these stained glass windows of St. Vitus were commissioned in this time. And some of the stained glass windows, and you'll be able to see at in a split second which ones are which, um, because it's very Art Nouveau. Like we've mentioned previously, the, the St. Vitus Cathedral in the Prague Castle was finished in like 1927. So, you know, at the height of Mucha's fame. Um, but that's not what Mucha, that's not, that was not his pet project. That was not his passion, right? Um, his passion was, like you said, these philosophical ideas of what it means to be Slavic and, you know, not to be, you know, the troubles of Slavs, right? Remember that Russians just abolished serfdom in what, the 19th century? I mean, it was like recent, 
or or even you know really in World War One, if you think about it, uh, you know, czar, one of the the last czars started, and really the communists really changed things. You know, and and, and when you see the the Slav epics, you know, with these giant canvas paintings as of a, a, a size of a building. Giant. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the, um, huge, huge, huge. That that you see that. Give us um, a, that, do you have a do you have a measurement? Because I actually I want people to imagine how big these things I are. I don't know if we when, have a measurement. When you stand today. in, so I mean, um, okay, let me guess. Um, I'll tell you, it's like it's taller than me for one thing. I mean, it, like if you have them sitting on the floor, it's taller than me. It's it's seven, eight, nine feet tall, and wider than that okay i i would I, if i if i can't try I, I probably would say that 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 wouldn't do it justice no it, i know but i i don't want to i don't want to the thing is I'm, i don't want to over exaggerate how big these are they're freaking huge you you can there's several <laughs> they're paces is that a metric freaking that is freaking a huge. they're freaking huge <laughs> they are uh you know at least i don't know 50 feet i mean there's several paces you walk past each one and you, you know they're, they're a series so there's multiple there's a dozen or more i I mean, he never really finished the the project, um, and some of them are in Prague, and they, and just like four of them will fill a room, you know, because it's just each one is a wall. So I mean, that's now you're starting to get the picture of of just how, how the scale of these paintings. When you stand in front of them, they cover your field of vision. You're you're completely immersed. And, and that that is it's, tricky. It's IMAX. It's IMAX theater for it's IMAX 3D yeah, for uh, yeah oil paintings amazing when, when, when you stand too close to it you don't get really the the, the grandiose view of it you really need to step back However, from it so that that that's yeah. you need to do both because the detail is there and many if you could look if you go look online and you look up uh, mukha's pan slavs so many times you'll get a tiny fraction of the big thing because there'll be like a woman holding a child, okay? And that part of the painting is only a couple inches or maybe a foot squared, um, you know, altogether. Out of this, you know, 20 foot by 10 foot, uh, 30, 50 foot by 10 foot, um, you know, epic portrait. And that is one of a dozen, which means you need to, first of all, walk up really close and kind of scan it all over and then take a step back and take it all in. I mean, it's just, it's something you need to like study and really like, it, and it's all, it's, they're all saying a picture. They're all talking about, um, you know, Slavic, uh, past, you know, the, the, including the serfdom in, in Russia and, and, and other aspects and Austrians and just all kinds of, some of it's a little bit symbolic and, and goes back to mythology or, um, you know, just, it's a very romantic, uh, kind of, uh, artwork style, but very realistic, you know, very, uh, just very well done. Not so much Art Nouveau like his other stuff. It's, it's, it's a class of its own. It really is his life work. I, I mean, he would tell you it's, it was his life's work. So, Travis, you and I at different periods of time while living here in Prague, you know, uh, have been to some of these, you know, great ex- exhibitions of uh, the, the um, Slav. Epic, you know, Slav epic that that Muka had had done, and they are immense. They are huge. Uh, they're basically a tour of his viewpoint of history. Now, at this time in the Czech in Czechoslovakia, or the um, uh, before Czechoslovakia, rather, it, and it, when they're still part of the Hunga- Austro-Hungarian Empire, the idea of rise of nationalism and the national pride to take within being Czech was really at the same. So the, this really was at the, at the crossroads, and you'll see that he was trying very hard not only to bring Czechs together, but also 
Russo right. Slavic folks to to the to the table as well. You will see glorification of the famous general Jan Zizka, who some feel were was a was a terrorist of his day. Others feel he was uh, a religious uh, freedom fighter. Uh, you'll see you'll see that as you mentioned, Travis. You'll see a lot of serfs struggling with uh, with poverty and starvation in in the forefront and the foreground uh, of a painting that deals right. with the Kremlin. Right. Oh, Moscow, yep. Moscovites. You know, you'll see some of that. You'll see some of the battles of Ottokar II. Um, you'll see uh, uh, some of the, the, the greatest moments in Czech history and uh, Bohemian history that are there. The Battle of Marchfield, uh, where Ottokar II fell. Um, it, it really is amazing to see this. Yet I still think that you go in and you think, wow, oh, this is a little bit of propaganda. Uh, this is a. It, it's, well, it's yeah, a, I mean, you, yeah, be, you know, you know my sense. right, you, you know my yeah. views on nationalism. However, um, <laughs> but Bumucha totally was just. Um, we see this with many, many people that he was a, a, a among Czechs that he was a product of his time because the Czechs really wanted freedom, and the, you know, and and as as Czechs they wanted freedom, which means they. This this nationalistic sense was encouraged. It was I would even say it was for the Czechs a good thing, even though I'm like you know like strictly anti-nationalist. Um, but you know we see this in the hockey ice hockey movement, in the um, Sokol movement, in the Czech legions. Uh, you know all this, and then uh, you know and Mucha was alive for all of this, and um, now it's the first republic when they're celebrating their freedom, but. There were already people that thought he went too far, definitely. There were already people saying, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, pan, pan, uh, Pan-Slavism, is that really such a good idea? You know who else really wants Pan-Slavism? The Russians. The, the Soviet <laughs> Union. Not right. the Russians, specifically, the Soviet Union loves the idea of Pan-Slavism. And it was also featured at the very forefront of um, Soviet art. You know, the Soviet realist realism, the uh, Russian realism or whatever, uh, socialist realism or whatever it's called. Um, that style featured uh, Pan-Slavic ideas all the time. The bad aspects of nationalism, because he did want, you know, he's like, we all speak Slavic. We should all be part of a bigger brotherhood, not just Czechs, not just Moravians. Um, so, you know, an, an idealist, right? I, I think every idealist is flawed in a way. Uh, um, but, <laughs> but absolutely. Um, uh, you know, he, he did, he did have a passion. He strongly believed in, in those ideas and, and those philosophies and, um, was able to express them, express them beautifully. I mean, just amazing stuff. I want to go back to Prague and see him again. Just talking yeah, about it, this makes me want to go to that museum and, and just it, like, it's, it's it's really something, you know. Well, it, that that's if his stuff is still there, because um, as we get to his legacy, uh, we'll see that there's been a tug of war of his of where to put if there is if there could be such a thing, the Mucha Museum National Museum in the in the in the Czech Republic, and you know his works go back and forth between the town of Bruno and in between in between the Prague, but looking ahead toward towards his death, you know it wasn't actually a, a very very good in for a man that was so internationally well-renowned. The rising tide of fascism during the late 1930s resulted in Muka's work and his Slavic nationalism being denounced, as we just talked about, by the press as reactionary. When German troops moved into Czechoslovakia during the spring of 1939, Muka was among the first persons to be arrested by the Gestapo. 
So uh, could you imagine being someone knocking on your door for that, Travis? I mean, yeah, you know, man, some and, crazy and stuff. At this point, seriously, 39, he was elderly. He was, you know. Yeah, like, come I mean, on, they, come on. They would have had really? to help, have to help him out the door. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know, I don't know if he was in that bad shape then, but he was. Yeah, I mean, he was not, you know, well, he was. No, it was. Of he, his life. Yeah. he was battling pneumonia and everything, so he was very ill when all this. Oh interrogation no, no, the pneumonia, the pneumonia yeah. actually might have. He might have caught that uh, in, during the interrogation. I wouldn't be surprised because that's the thing. Well, so everybody likes to blame the Nazis, myself included, but I, but I'm at least aware that I have that bias. I, I honestly openly hate the Nazis. Um, and so, yeah, of course it's the Nazis fault. They gave him pneumonia. Um, but it's not all sources agree. And, and I think we'll never know this for a fact. Um, but he did die of complications, you know, later and he was weakened by the interrogation. I would say, I would go out on a limb and say, that's safe to say, um, and he did get pneumonia shortly thereafter and, and or had it even then, um, perhaps got it during the interrogation. We did a tour with a couple people and we went past um, near the Loreto Church near on oh, near I know where Castle. You're going. Yeah. Right? yeah. And there was the, the, the Gestapo, Gestapo interrogation had, rooms. Exactly. Do you think he was taken there? Um, I don't know. So that that was the Gestapo headquarters. And probably, yes, there are okay. later. um in the war, uh, there were later interrogations where I know for a fact, like like that room, that window, that's where they were. Mukha probably that site, but he, but he was like um, like you said, he was one of the first to be arrested. So maybe they had a more temporary place. Um, but they took over the you know it was an it was an Austro-Hungarian police building, which yeah, the, then the First Republic used it as a police building, and then the Gestapo took it over, and then it became the. Um, Czechoslovak secret police, kind of like the Czechoslovak version of the KGB headquarters in in communist times, and it's a police building to this day. It's, yeah, it's still weird, a police it? building. It's just <laughs> yeah. So people were actually killed in those rooms and tortured and all that by communists. As there's a really famous communist case, um, but yeah, exactly. Mucha. There's a good chance that that Mucha was, and that's this is verifiable. I'm just being lazy. Um, but yeah, Mukha could have been held in those rooms behind the castle, kind of. All the stress on, a, on a, an old man at this point uh, took its toll with the pneumonia and and uh, who knows what else happened with the torture. But he passed away in Prague on the 14th of July in 1939 due to a lung infection, probably on the onset from from uh, the uh, pneumonia taking his toll. And uh, he was later interred in Vishrad Cemetery, which is one of the uh, more famous uh, cemeteries in uh, Prague. Right by where I used to, to live. It was like a couple yeah. blocks from my house. Uh, you know, got, yeah. Who's who is in there, to be honest yep. with you, all of poet, poet laureates and, uh, you know, politicians and you name it, they're all there, including Mucha is, is there. So, you know, we talk about his legacy, Trav, man, it, one thing that kind of sticks out to me was the tug of war between getting his his work or being putting a giant museum here in Prague just dedicated to him, foundation, lay it down, you know, brick and mortar, it's there. It's not doing that because there's something that goes back to his time in his life when he was trying to make money, and he was and he was not having a good good uh, uh, opportunity to sell some of his works, and uh, some places didn't want to uh, to pay him for his work because he was late or they didn't like it or there was something else that that came in fashion um and he held grudges with these things from what i remember yeah i just and i just got to say like this that. is you know this is the art world of the 1920s okay so this is like there's a whole lot of stuff going on 
uh, Art Nouveau had a heyday like hardly any art fad or art style had. Like it was international. It took. Um, we think of Paris, but you know now we've established he's Czech. Um, but it took Paris by storm. I, I mentioned today, uh, if you go to a French restaurant, it's it's probably going to be that font. Um, but it was, uh, you know, there was all kinds of other things going on in the art world, and Art Deco took over as being more popular. There was other, you know, Cubism, um, Picasso. Picasso had nothing to do with Art Nouveau. Um, you know, he, he went off in his own direction and, and there's just all these, um, these other things. And so of course they all criticize Art Nouveau as being too this or too that or whatever. And, um, but it was already towards the end of his lifetime, you know, falling out of favor, considered old fashioned world war two, definitely put a kibosh on it. World war two, you get all these anti-art movements, you know, it's a black era again. And, um, so yeah, that's the art world. That doesn't really, you know, but of course everything, you know, hi history is cyclical in a way. And it, there was a re huge revival in the 60s. If you think of like some of the psychedelic artwork, uh, some of that writing and some of that artwork is like Mucha influenced the patterns and, and you know, just the way it flows. Um, and then again, if, I mean, today it's just, it's, you see it everywhere in Prague. It's, it's a touristy thing, you know, so a cafe will have it in the, in the cafe's name will be in the Mucha writing. It's, it's almost like a default font. Um, and you'll see his artwork everywhere. So, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I think you, you would be, um, hard pressed to find someone that wouldn't want to have a dedicated museum here to him in Prague because Prague wants to, to say that, uh, he was, he was one of theirs. Um, however, when you talk about this going back and forth and not getting paid what he thought he was he was worth at the time, a lot of people feel that his his hometown of uh, Ivanchitsa, uh, which is just very close to Bruno in Moravia, would would be the natural home for it. And so there's a le there's a legal battle still to this day oh, about gotcha. yeah yeah going right. back and forth about things. Yeah. So if you want to see the Slav epic, you you may have to wait or you may have to drive to Brno. Uh, yeah. to, to go see it. It's still not so. settled like uh, that. So that that also there's fights that have been going on since his lifetime, basically his son and his grandson. Um, the Slav epic has sat in storage for 25 years. No one yeah. got to see them. And yeah. just like, it, what? I mean, litigation and, the and honestly, <laughs> honestly, yeah, if you go to, if you go to the Mucha Museum in Prague today, I got to say the space, the Mucha Museum itself does not do it justice. I mean, um, they have it's a it's a fantastic collection. Like the collection is better than the museum is what I'm saying. It's not properly funded. It's underappreciated. It's it's, you know, and um, uh, so go there, just go there and give them a large tip in their donation jar. Uh, so they can, you know, fight for these things and for them to be preserved. And, the, and it's a fantastic collection. You'll see um, some sketches. You can really, you really see, first of all, how his art form evolved from a painting. They have some of the original from Paris, some uh, Paris, some of the um, screen, the, the printings for the theater plays, and then um, some of his later works. And then, of course, they actually have some of the pan, the pan Slavic, those huge paintings. Uh, at least they did temporarily when I was there. I don't remember. 
Um, now, are you are you talking about the the Prague uh, Modern Museum where they held the Slavic? No, it's it's the it's the Alphonse Mucha Museum or something. Okay, like that. so different one. Yeah, okay. that's the th- there's so, more than yeah. one. There's more than one, but that's what I'm saying. Right. Like for the collection they have, if you go there, you will to that one place I'm talking about. You'll first of all see the whole evolution from Pan Slavism to his first sketches, um, to uh, you know pictures of his studio and all that stuff and and of his life. To you'll also see um, the range of his like his workflow, his his first sketches to the tracing to the now you know the in pen to the um, to the printing to the final product, and you really get a glimpse of like oh like how it all worked and how we put it all all together and 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 you know how he worked as an artist like at you know on his daily day job kind of thing, and it's just a great museum and you know, you know under, I, underfunded I, and smaller than it should be kind of. I I hope people don't hate me by saying this, but I think that there's a Norman Rockwell quality, American quality that that you can see that probably Norman Rockwell, Rockwell got from Muka, and I think. That's the first thing when I went in to see some of Muka's work here in Prague. I went, "Wow, that is—he's captured some uh, a human being so so exactly, almost like a, a photograph, you know, that you would see." And um, you know, and I I think that both of them have this in common. At one point in their careers, they commercialized their artwork so that that they made the standard for what that was, be it the Saturday, Saturday Evening Post by Norman Rockwell or. By right. you know being a, a poster for theater by right. by Muka, um, I don't think it detracts who they are because you have to feed yourself, man. I mean, you, you know, sometimes you get you got to be commissioned and do no, something just so you can, yeah so you can get by. Yeah, if anything, um, then the negativity yeah. comes from that he is so popular that if you go to a tourist shop in Prague, you're just saturated with. Um, aprons, you know, coins, tin little uh, yeah. uh, marijuana boxes with <laughs> That's right. Art and he's like, oh, really? <laughs> you know, calendars, pencils, um, earrings, refrigerator magnets, uh, you know, and it's just kind of like, OK, OK, I get it. It's been done. Um, but if you go and see some of the originals and, and you know, look at, you know, the scale, how big they are and even the 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 um, theater posters, the original prints are are big. And, um, you know, he did, and he did sets of four, like the four seasons, the, you know, the four, uh, he did, he did many sets of four and they're just, they're just amazing to see. And, um, yeah, but, but of course it's just like, it's so cliche almost like you go to a cafe, of course, it's going to be, you know, art nouveau trimmings and, and art, art nouveau, um, fonts and menus and, and maybe even a, a mucha hanging up, you know? Um, and, and so it's just like, okay, you know, next, please. I want, I want to see something else. Um, but it's popular because it's it's beautiful. It's popular because there is something to it. Absolutely. And I, and I think also as we end the show tonight, I think it's pop, he he is popular because he's he's in the hearts of his countrymen in the sense that during the time of the, the earliest twentieth century, when nationalism and and, and that cultural identity was com- just coming out for the Czechs to hold on to, they had somebody that was a rock star to say, "Hey, he's one of us. He's he's a Czech. He's he's Slavic." Um, and look what we can do. And I think that that's something that uh, is still respected uh, by people here in the Czech Republic because of his international standing of, of being a, an artist that really set the tone for his style of art. 
Well, before we leave you tonight, we want to make sure that you uh, get a chance to take a look at some of the other things that we're doing and take a listen to as, as well. Uh, you can go to our Bohemian YouTube channel to see so, some of our stories that we can give you a visual representation upon. Or go to podcastnick.com to see all our projects we're working on from the Bohemian podcast to the history of Germany to the secret cabinet uh, that Travis works on and, and translates. Uh, you'll get to see... Um, uh, some of the, the history of alchemy, you know, our sister podcast we have for that show. You'll get to be uh, uh, get to more information about what we do for that, as well as some of the other side projects we do. We're running books. We're trying to uh, uh, do some other uh, endeavors out there to kind of get our interests out to you, our listeners and our viewers. And we think that uh, hopefully 2016 will be an amazing year for us to kind of really break open that door on all these different types of media that we're trying to do right now. Speaking of the, the latest YouTube video is in fact the 70th Pete and I headed over to Pilsen for the 70th anniversary of the liberation of Pilsen by allied U S troops. In fact, um, at the end of world war two. And it's the one and only time I, I took my grandfather's uh, army uniform out of my closet and put it on and you know headed out to town and and you know so it's it's just incredibly put together it's about 11 minute video and um just really well done i would say like documentary st- uh quality production on uh, on Pete's behalf here um really great youtube video so just go to youtube and look at you look for the bohemian youtube channel or um even type in you know 70th anniversary pilsen uh, liberation that that kind of thing you'll find it or just go to bohemian.com there's there's a link to the youtube channel there we wanted to make it more like a time machine, so you get a chance to see what 1945 was like uh, on May 8th, and, and what what's it's cool. Uh, it's well done. Yeah, yeah. When the Americans rolled into the pills and to liberate oh, the towns. Oh, yeah, I almost media. forgot. We we interviewed Helen Patton, like General Patton's granddaughter. Oh, yeah. I mean, we really yeah. it, we had just had a great time. We went there for more than one day, so we went back and got more shots the second day. So yeah, it was great. All right, well, for Travis Dow, I'm Pete Coleman. I want to say goodnight for Prague. You have been listening to the Bohemican Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Doe. Visit bohemican.com for more information on this episode, other episodes, and much more information about history, traditions, and culture in the Czech Republic. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, and review, and don't forget to rate us. We would love to hear from you. Send comments, ideas, and corrections on our comments page on bohemican.com. Or get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. Tune in to our sister podcast, History of Alchemy, which is also on iTunes or on historyofalchemy.com. Until next time on the Bohemican Podcast, thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.